Hello everyone and welcome to the EdTech Podcast. For those of you who watch Blue Planet, I hope you're not having too many nightmares about the aptly named Bobbit Worm. For those of you outside of the UK, just Google search Bobbit Worm and let the nightmares roll in. In more EdTech-related news, a big shout out to everyone who came along to the Learner Experience Design Panel at Innovate EdTech. It was great to meet listeners like Angela Sam and the discussion will be out on the EdTech podcast in the next few weeks, featuring the Harris Federation of UK Schools, Detective Dot, British Dyslexia Association and School 21. Some more listener feedback this week from Duncan Frith, who said, Very much enjoyed the last series of the EdTech podcast, Sophie. I found each episode so useful, reflecting precisely the education trends and user expectations I'm finding in my own work. Congratulations, and here's to the next series. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you very much. And you're in luck, as the Future Tech for Education series should be out by the time you hear this message. Don't forget, if you'd like to add your feedback to our podcast, you can record a quick audio message at speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast. It's super easy and we'll compile them weekly to be included in the show. Some more announcements this week to share with you all. Full details for all announcements are available at the edtechpodcast.com under the latest podcast episode show notes. First up, money, money, money. Sage have a $1 million pot to invest specifically in early stage edtech companies. Contact Nick at eltjam.com to find out more. Young Startup Ventures have an edtech pitch track and funding and that runs on December the 6th in Boston. And Teachers Rocket Fund have match funding for 10 schools for education and edtech projects. What else, what else? Events. Five free tickets are available to listeners of the EdTech podcast to New York EdTech Week, which takes place on December the 18th to the 20th. All you have to do is tag at NYEdTechWeek at Podcast EdTech on Twitter for the chance to win. Reimagine Education Conference and Awards take place the 4th to the 5th of December 2017 in Philadelphia. And finally, the BET Award finalists for 2018 have been announced. Big disclaimer, I'm a judge and full listings are available on the website. Phew, what a lot of news. If you're keen on more updates like that, make sure you join our newsletter, check out the Instagram page or like our Facebook page. You won't regret it. Okay, now on to this episode. This week, we're in the last of our three higher ed focused episodes recorded at Future EdTech 2017. I'm in conversation with Nicole Engelbert, Director of Research and Analysis at Ovum Technology. Nicole used to work as a Director of Admissions, so is well-placed to understand the higher ed perspective, as well as the latest industry research on innovation within the higher education sector. We talk about what's up and what's down, and the pace of change in HE. Alongside this one from Nicole, you can also check out the second of our Pearson Future Tech for Education series on what is AI and what has it got to do with me and my students. That episode is available on the EdTech Podcast feed at iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio or the EdTech Podcast website. A big shout out to the Qatar Foundation International and Class Central for sponsoring this week's episode. A quick message from them and don't forget if you're enjoying the podcast, you can drop us a review on iTunes where you can also rate the show. Arabic is the official language of more than 27 countries and there are more than 400 million speakers of the language worldwide. Yet in the US, for example, less than 1% of students study Arabic. 
Studies have shown that those who speak a second language not only earn more, but are in higher level positions than their monolingual counterparts. And there's no shortage of studies that point to the benefits of students at the K-12 level learning a new language. The National Research Council in 2007 found that children who study a foreign language show greater cognitive development in areas such as mental flexibility, creativity and higher order thinking skills. Qatar Foundation International inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators, connecting them through effective and collaborative learning environments inside and outside the classroom. Qatar Foundation International builds bridges across cultures by increasing the number of K-12 students in the Americas and the United Kingdom with a good knowledge and understanding of Arabic language and culture by increasing the number and quality of Arabic programs in state and public charter schools in the United States and other countries. Qatar Foundation International supports the teaching of the Arabic language through grant giving and programming activities while increasing and professionalizing the supply of highly qualified teachers of Arabic, thus raising the visibility of a growing profession through grants, professional development and free online resources. For more information on free teaching materials and available grants, please go to qfi.org and ispeakarabic.com. And now, a quick message from our friends at Class Central. It's been more than half a decade since free online courses from Stanford kicked off the modern MOOC or massive online open courses movement. Since then, more than 700 universities around the world have launched MOOCs and more than 60 million people have taken at least one course. Class Central has been keeping track of the MOOC space right from the beginning. Over 10 million learners have used Class Central to find and review online courses. As the number one search engine for online courses, Class Central provides a comprehensive listing of more than 8,000 MOOCs. Class Central's MOOC report blog contains the most comprehensive coverage of the industry, including a recent listing of the top 50 MOOCs of all time. To find out what's up, down, new or just slightly left field in the world of online courses, head to www.class-central.com forward slash report. Great. So now, without further delay, here's episode 93 with Nicole Engelbert, Director of Research and Analysis at Ovum Technology. I'm here with Nicole Engelbert, who is Director of Research and Analysis at Ovum Technology. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Future EdTech over the last two days, really about what's happening in higher education and you know what new technologies and what challenges and opportunities that presents us. From your perspective, what's the latest research telling us about the future of EdTech in higher education? So it's a, I have been kind of talk about it as we're on the brink of a golden age in higher education um, because kind of almost the planets have aligned for more rapid adoption and innovation in in higher education. I mean, the last however many decades, the last 600 years of of higher education has been conservative in terms of how it's adopted new technologies, be it the tablet all the way through, I mean, the tablet with Socrates to the tablet even even today. Or female students even. Oh, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And so kind of, now we're seeing kind of institutions jumping in with maybe not two feet, 
but definitely yeah. one foot and a few toes on the other into cloud because they're looking to find more capacity and time and resource for innovation at the institutions. They're also kind of looking at how do we streamline commodity functions? How do we kind of kind of spend less time keeping the lights on for our ERP solution, our student system, the more basic workload type applications so we can divert that resource to driving value and innovation for for students and for research. And that sounds quite quite simple, but it's actually quite transformative in higher education. Um, and so that's why we're now starting to see kind of conversations around artificial intelligence. We're seeing conversations around virtual and enhanced reality. We're seeing kind of, I mean, my goodness, there are two presentations this week on chatbots mm-hmm. in, in, in higher education. We're kind of seeing kind of much more kind of rich and immersive online learning, kind of really looking at the pedagogy and applying the technology in innovative ways. So I think now the door has opened for actually ed tech to flourish in education. So that's really interesting because it sounds like we're still very much at the infrastructure end of business. So, you know, getting the kind of backbone stuff in there, sort of moving stuff to the cloud as opposed to necessarily what's the business of higher education and how does that look? And, you know, will it remain in its current form, which hasn't really innovated that much itself mm-hmm. looking across to k-12 and i think wi-fi and broadband and some of those services are still a, a restricting factor to sort of the more innovative services mm-hmm. and we've seen that, that creates a quite a big delay in actual innovation because we're still waiting on what are those services going to sit upon do you think there's still going to be quite a slow pace of change or is it really going to be that golden age and how long is that journey as well so for for higher education, connectivity is actually not not an the issue, issue not yeah. an issue for them because they are in many ways kind of supporting the backbone for for the UK and in the United States. I mean, they have um, connectivity is definitely not 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 the issue. They're sorting out the infrastructure from a mostly kind of administrative solutions, like kind of too much those solutions which constitute kind of a massive portion of the institutional IT budget. They're kind of finding ways to reduce that burden so they can transfer those resources towards more innovative Mm. activities. So technology becomes, instead of, I mean, quite sadly, an inhibitor Mm -hmm. to transformation, innovation, agility of the institution to becoming a kind of driver of transformation and innovation and, and agility. This is happening now kind of more rapidly in the 12 years I've been working as an analyst than I've ever seen it happen before. And is it to the big players like Google and Microsoft or what's the kind of makeup of that shift to the cloud? So in large part, AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services is kind of the, I don't want to say dominant player, um, but they have kind of the most kind of market share and um, kind of visibility in the higher education Mm. market. That's only kind of part of the of the of the story, and some of that is kind of researchers kind of spinning up compute on on AWS, but it's also the major administrative players, so the Oracles and Tribals and Elucians and SAPs and Unit Fours of the world, kind of readying their solutions and getting their solutions to be able to be available mm-hmm. on the cloud. And Elucian has actually been built on AWS. Oracle, of course, has their own own cloud. 
So it's not kind of the consumer market, kind of Googles and kind of Facebooks that are kind of driving that that shift. It's actually kind of more industry specific players. But and that's a big, big but here. And we, we heard this today from the, the student panel that the students have quite different mm. expectations. I mean, when young women said it kind of bluntly, I'm now paying 7,000 or 9,000 pounds a year for my education. Which is like nothing versus in the US. <laughs> it, it is, but you know, that's a whole different, that's a whole other kind of conversation. Mm. Their experiences with Google and Facebook and WhatsApp and on and on and on with these, these kind of consumer market applications is changing what they expect mm. in terms of how technology is used and presented and, and serviced at their institution. And institutions now are thinking, okay, how do we and anticipate what our students want and how do we deliver it in an intuitive, no need for training, can change by the week, by the month, as opposed to by the five-year strategic mm. strategic plan. And I think that's where we'll start seeing kind of more Google-type applications in, in, in higher education. And from an edtech and higher education point of view, where should we be bullish and where should we be more cautious, do you think? Well, in, in higher education, let's are, are bullish and um, cautious. We have to kind of put it in a in a higher education kind yeah. of con- context. Not telecoms, not not retail. I think we should be kind of quite bullish on kind of any of the technologies that kind of directly support the student experience. We've seen accelerated growth in the adoption of constituent relationship management or CRM technologies. And the associated capabilities around this. So things like kind of social media monitoring, kind of more advanced kind of content management and content creation and content delivery capabilities. We're also seeing kind of the more pervasive and innovative adoption of video capabilities, both from a collaboration perspective, but also from a content delivery perspective. And that kind of gives rise to a whole nother host of technologies as well. There's a lot of discussion and myself included just in this podcast around kind of artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. adaptive intelligence, uh, big data, machine learning, kind of all those scary Skynet type of things. Those are a bit further down the road. They They will happen and they will kind of transform the way educational services and research is done in higher education. But there are a lot of steps between where the institution is today and what they need to do in order to be able to pull down those capabilities. I mean, those those capabilities often rest on the kind of robust data lakes. Mm-hmm. Higher education more has kind of data swamps at this yeah. at this point, and we're gonna have to kind of sort that, sort that. It will happen but we're going to measure that in in, in years at, the, at this point. And do you think any, I mean, you've got a GDPR regulation coming in from the EU, whether that will yeah. help kickstart some of that due diligence around data? It will definitely kickstart due diligence. <laughs> Absolutely. My concern around GDPR is that because higher education is a consensus-driven shared governance industry, um, it's the only industry where something cannot be passed because one person says, no, we're not going to do that, that program or take take that action. Kind of anytime we have to kind of start now looking at compliance and kind of looking at kind of data governance and data stewardship and kind of really start thinking about 
privacy issues and kind of protecting student data, it will give rise to many, many meetings and conversations and task force and initiatives. And it's fantastic because it'll force the institution to kind of really work through these issues, but it will slow down slow down the process to be sure yeah so you used to work as a director of admissions if i'm if my research is correct so there are now a whole range of companies trying to ease the admissions process and to be more sophisticated about matching students with courses to prevent uh, dropouts and sort of negative press associated with that is that process working is that changing things for the better do you think do you have any view on what you're seeing there it is improving things for the better and institutions have made quite a bit of of process and I suppose what we'd call kind of student life cycle management. So from the first time a student provides some kind of indication of interest in the institution, that might be kind of something as not sophisticated as sending in a card saying, yes, please send me more information all the way through to some institutions are now using social media Mm -hmm. monitoring to say, oh, a student, a prospective student had a positive tweet about mm-hmm. my institution, let's kind of reach out to them um, in a meaningful way and kind of start building a profile for this institution. So it has dramatically increased the sophistication of the recruitment process for institutions gl- globally, kind of beyond the UK, kind of really everywhere. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, we all that experience of maybe receiving a, a view book in the mail or maybe meeting someone at a college favorite fair or maybe your neighbor just told you you know you liked your neighbor and they went to xyz university so you applied there and they had the right the right program to a much more kind of almost retail market type of approach to kind of targeting and segmenting and kind of making a match between the institution and the prospective student kind of where we'll see though the the most dramatic impact, and institutions are working really, really hard, nearly every institution has this kind of initiative, is around student retention and kind of understanding who is at risk of dropping out or not completing or not completing in a timely timely way their course of study. And this is for traditional students all the way through to kind of adult learners. The technology is there today, and it's provided by kind of a you know, a myriad of vendors, a thousand vendors bloom in this in this space. And many of the solutions are actually quite innovative. They use kind of great analytics technology. They use kind of super in types of different types of engagement. They use kind of different types of kind of content management. It's really fantastic stuff. The challenge for institutions is that they have to restructure processes within the institution in order to to manage that. And for some institutions, it's quite a, a leap. You know, I remember kind of quite clearly when I went off to university myself, my father who went to an engineering college said my first day of university, the chancellor got up and said, look to your left, look to your right. Those students won't graduate with you. And it wasn't a point of this is terrible. You need to work, work really hard. It was more a point of pride that the university was so difficult that most students wouldn't graduate. Well, that doesn't fly in in today's world, but that's how most folks within the university have kind of grown, grown up. And so it's a bit of cultural change and process change in order to get to a kind of student life cycle management approach to retention. This week, did you release any statistics or are there any report findings that sometimes at these events are 
you know, release that you can share in terms of uh, numbers or, or trends in that way? Or Sure. So we released some numbers on kind of student information system spend. And, you know, we're looking at not particularly exciting if it were another industry, but now we're looking at globally a 5.82% CAGR or compound annual growth rate for investments by institutions globally. I mean, we are now kind of going into a phase where institutions, and like I said kind of earlier, really modernizing their administrative systems so they can deliver much more compelling um, services to students. Um, So, I mean, in some ways it's great times if you are a student information systems vendor Mm -hmm. because there's going to be lots of projects coming down, down the pipe, but it really means that the quality of service in in higher education, not over the next five years because they're going to be kind of sorting out their systems, but you know, ten years from now, we'll really start to see profound changes kind of in the way that you interact with your university. And I mean, it would be interesting to see as well. Looking across to K twelve, there was a sort of flood of LMS products, and that sort of had to developed quite quite rapidly because of the volume and. I don't know, they, they started to get perhaps a, a slightly bad name because it was like a, a, a flood of very similar systems. And then they kind of refined afterwards. So it'd be interested to see the, the developments there. What inspires you? So wh- what do you like as a person and how can people connect with you? And, you know, how did you get into this role as well? It was completely random, I must say. I, you know, I'm a, an education policy analyst by training. And so I really thought I would be spending my my life doing research into testing and and assessment. But kind of one day, there was an ad in the New York Times saying, do you know technology? Do you know how to do research? Do you know the higher education market? I'm like, well, my goodness, that's that's me. And as I've kind of developed in this this role, kind of really watching the higher education industry and providing advisory to to institutions and to the vendors that, that serve them, you can see the impact. It's kind of quite tangible. When you're a policy analyst, you are shaping quite at the macro, mm-hmm. at the macro level, um, which is you know critically, critically important. But as an, a technology industry analyst, you know I'm advising institutions about kind of which CRM solution are they going to kind of implement? How are they going to structure that initiative so they can see their retention rate? Increase and when you see someone's intention rate increase, it's not just a lovely a lovely number. Mm-hmm. It's kind of X number of students who now graduated who are now more employable. I mean, being a bit poetic, not well, not particularly well poetic, mm-hmm. but poetic here, it, it actually changes mm-hmm. some people's lives. So while you know I'm covering bits and bytes, at the end of the day, it may mean a better life for for a student. I don't know. That seems like a good enough reason to get up in the morning. No, I think it's not a space to make a quick buck in, I don't think, ed tech. So I think a lot of people that do move into it, you know, they do. They are attracted by the, the ability to have an effect and a positive one, I think. Are there any resources, people or books that have had an impact on you that you continue to go back to? And that doesn't have to be an educational technology, but books or people that, you know, have helped frame how you think. Any thoughts on that? Gosh, when it comes to ed tech, you know, there's a lot of literature around school change and and institutional change. And you know, I had the 
privilege of um, doing my graduate studies at Teachers College at, at Columbia University. And Linda Darling Hammond was a professor at the time. And, you know, she was a big leader in the kind of concept of top-down support for bottom-up change. And that has, I think, profoundly guided my my kind of frame or my point of view on how do you have an impact. Really, it's so critical for the people who are going to be carrying out the change that they need to be the ones who are kind of building and constructing and iterating on what that change will be, but that they need to have strong leadership to kind of clear the road as they make that journey. So if you ever do have the opportunity to read some, I mean, some of her research papers, I mean, she is a, you know, a social scientist, so yeah. we're not, and it's not for the faint of heart. Is she, uh, is she on Twitter? Um, is that I, a step too far? Uh, yeah, I think that might be a step, <laughs> step too far, but I mean, certainly, you know, an, an easy Google search will yeah. kind of bring up conference papers and videos. I'm sure YouTube would be a great source yeah, okay. um, for some of her presentations, but really great stuff from her. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Nicole. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's the end of this week's episode. I love to hear your feedback, so do please tweet, comment, or send a voicemail to us. Have a great week and see you next time.